Welcome to On Olive Oil, hosted by Curtis Cord, the publisher of Olive Oil Times. Featuring 30-minute discussions with people throughout the world, sharing their unique perspectives on the ever-changing olive oil landscape. Today's guest is Cobram Estate Chef-at-Large, Kevin O'Connor. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do that? You know, you could travel around and cook and both harvest, market the oil and build content. Kind of got to a point where I just said, well, well, can I? Can I do that? Now, from New York City, here's Curtis Cord. Kevin O'Connor is the chef-at-large for Cobram Estate, the renowned Australian olive oil brand that is branching out into the American market. It's harvest time in California, and Kevin has been working the festivities. He joins us today from Woodland, I imagine, right, Kevin? Yeah, I'm at our headquarters in Woodland. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. So what does a chef-at-large for an olive oil brand do at harvest time? Oh gosh, quite a bit. Um, we do a lot of um, harvest festivities and sales and marketing tours. So that obviously comes with feeding everybody. So during harvest, I'm busy cooking and, and focusing on all these different fresh monocultivars and highlighting all these great oils that we make through um, lunches, dinners, breakfasts, and, and different events, generally out in the olive grove. Um, so we can show everybody the full process. We take them through um, the office, our lab, the tasting room, through processing, obviously, out to the groves, take them up on the harvester so they can just see every single process. And then we um, finish that with a, with a long table lunch in the grove um, so we can see everything from you know, harvest to processing to um, enjoying these fresh oils. So are these organized tours, or are they journalists, or uh, customers, or all of the above? It's mainly press and media. So we'll do a couple large trips for press and media, and they'll generally stay a night out here or two. Um, and we'll entertain them a little bit in Sacramento and just kind of show them our culture and, and our growing California olive oil culture and kind of how we roll over here in short. And then we did a, um, a glamping setup. So after going out through the groves and spending some time out there and doing the lunch out in Yolo County, we had some awesome tents set up. And when I say tents, I mean like... Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> these are beautiful safari tents with queen-size beds and, and um, just really enjoyed the, um, the awesome harvest scenery. And then um, the following morning, did a nice breakfast and sent them on their way. Um, so we did two of those trips with press and media and social media influencers. Um, and then that was followed up with six or seven um, events that we did that the sales team put together um, as we're growing. I mean, we're established in Australia, but we're still very much a startup here in the U.S. Getting those sales contacts in and, and showing them um, our processes and, and how good the olive oil can be in a meal is, is crucial. You get good press from something like that, or do the social media influencers pay off for you when you when you do something like that? I'm just curious. Yeah, they definitely do, and it's it's been interesting seeing that um, that industry, if you will, kind of mature and 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 get us a lot of recognition. So you grew up in El Dorado Hills, California. 
not far from Sacramento. You're, you're not far from Sacramento now. Mm. And I understand one of your first jobs was a teenager in a wine bar. Yeah, I was a dishwasher in a little mom and pop wine bar and bistro with just some, you know, very Americanized kind of French California cuisine. And um, that's what I aspired to do when I was 13, 14, was to be a dishwasher in a restaurant to get my foot in the door. I read somewhere that you had your big break in high school when you got hired at a restaurant in Sacramento and uh, you'd get out of school and you'd cook all night. I mean, how did that go? Tell us about that. And that that restaurant was up in El Dorado Hills. Mm -hmm. So growing up in El Dorado Hills, it was kind of pre-development when I moved up there. And then development came along and it started to grow and we started to see more restaurants come up there and and more restaurateurs come from the Bay Area and even LA and open some restaurants up there. So after dishwashing and kind of working my way through some mom and pop shops, if you will, and a country club, um, the big break was at a restaurant called Mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, which is now closed. It lasted about three years up there, actually. And a Michelin star chef from LA came up and, and helped launch that restaurant. So obviously I was foaming at the mouth to work there. And was just kind of bugging them all the time, bringing in my horrible resume, kind of just banging down the door. I want to say that persistence basically is is 90% of the reason why I got a job there. So yeah, I, I was lucky enough to have a work experience program in school. So I'd get out a little bit early and then I'd get out at about noon and start my shift at 1 and then get off at 11 p.m. And um, I loved it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd be being tired at school the next morning was kind of like these, um, like a badge of honor almost. And um, that's kind of the job that put things into perspective for me. It was it was very much a fine dining restaurant, which was so many levels above what, what I had been doing. And um, I, that's when I knew that's that's what I wanted to do. And that's when I started pursuing the fine dining and, and Michelin star path. What was it, though, about the food business that drew you in? Initially, I mean, what what I fell in love with even before I was old enough to work was the, the theater of dining and the gift giving. I mean, making people happy. It started with making my parents breakfast in bed and, and opening fake little restaurants in my bedroom just so I can share a passion, share something I love and share something that, that can transform uh, people and and just bring happiness to the table. I've always considered myself to be a pretty hospitable person, and and I realize now that that started at a very early age. And so then you, I read about your summer in the south of France where you tooled around on a triumph. Yeah. And uh, did you happen to see Chef Mark Pavlovic's hand-built Bonneville at the Culinary Center when we were there? I did see that. I didn't know that was the chef's. Um, now I'm even more jealous. I actually, I actually stopped to take pictures of that Bonneville. It was, it was beautiful. Yeah. I happen to have a Triumph too, a, a Bonneville T100. Awesome. So it's going around. Where were you in the South of France? I, I hopped around quite a bit in the South of France. I, I lived in Nice for a little while and, um, worked in Monaco. Um, I was in the Dordogne for a little while. Um, but predominantly just outside of Montpellier in a small village. Working as a chef? Or... Yeah, working as a cook. Um, I went through the organization WOOF, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms, but I, um, I kind of pinpointed farms that were connected to restaurants. And um, WOOF is a work exchange. Um, you'll go work on a farm or a brewery or a winery, and in exchange they'll basically make you part of the family, put you up, feed you. Sometimes they give you a small stipend. In this case, it was a, uh, 
a motorcycle to ride around on and go visit all the markets and and stipend for these markets and um they had kids my age and um we just became part of the family and and worked in their restaurant i did some work in the vineyards too Um, my dad is a winemaker so it was great to see that i also did a lot of work on the farm which is translating into the garden i have at work which we can get into all right well that's not anything like the jobs that i had when i was that age I'm feeling a little gypped, but, and how did the food there influence your cooking or what, what do you think the biggest takeaway is uh, from that period of your life? I think the largest takeaway was just to slow down. There were these dinners that we would have that I'll never forget. Every Sunday, cousins, uncles, neighbors, everybody would come and we'd be at the table for six hours. Mm. Um, I eventually started cooking these dinners, which is kind of how I started to find my style of cooking. But gosh, just the attention to detail and and the importance of, of great product really um, was the main takeaway. I didn't go there and learn a ton of techniques or learn how to cook. It was more just a finer focus on, on what's important and um, great food ethics. And then you returned to Sacramento. You opened up that, uh, that underground pop-up restaurant where friends and people you knew came and brought food and brought wine. And I understand you were chosen in, as a chef at a well-known place in, in Sacramento, Blackbird Kitchen and Bar. Yeah. And then you, got, then you got burnt out and you went into exile, roaming the countryside in Montana, eating strange mushrooms and anything else that you could find. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, in short. So after kind of opening that that pop-up which kind of happened accidentally um started with just having people over and then more people asking about it and then sacramento magazine asking if they could write an article on my pop-up restaurant i had to google what a pop-up was because at the time this is 10 years ago i didn't know what the hell a pop-up was so that kind of got me some great recognition and yes went went on to open blackbird a, a few years later um, there were some restaurants in between. Um, and being a 23-year-old executive chef at Blackbird, it was 100% art for me. It was just go, 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 and push, 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 and I burnt out completely. And it kind of just exactly what you said, roamed the countryside. I started in um, Carmel Valley on a ranch for a while, um, just gardening and riding horses, and then um, made my way to Montana to another ranch, actually, and and just really got into wild foods out there. Um, I got to work closely with the Yellowstone Foundation, foraging, culling populations, and and doing dinners with probably 90-95% wild foods. It was Montana in the summer, and it's just teeming with awesome wild product. I mean, you go on a walk, and there's six different kinds of currants. Hmm. Um, here in Northern California, there's there's a lot of great stuff, but I mean, I was just blown away with with how much how much stuff was just growing out there and that we could eat. How do you know what to eat? I mean, aren't you afraid of picking a berry and poisoning yourself to death? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the things I'd worked with in restaurants before, um, currants. I know what currants look like. You get into a field guide and and start reading and saying, oh yeah, this is a different kind of currant. It has the same quality as these you know, farmed currants that have used in the past and so on. Um, the mushrooms are a little trickier. Um, I always tell people that I don't eat a mushroom unless I'm 110% sure that that's what it is. There are certain, there are certain ways of identifying things like mushrooms. For instance, you can do what they call a spore print. So you'll take off the stem and lay the cap on a piece of paper 
Um, and each mushroom has a unique spore print, almost like a thumbprint. Mm. So then you can look at that spore print and match it up. But just tons of getting into field guides. And I mean, we were in Montana, um, so we had a ton of time to just dive into books and 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 learn. And then so after reading for three hours in the morning, we'd hop on the horse and then go apply that knowledge in the wild. And then I guess you had kind of a rebound from that experience and you dove into a place in San Francisco. I have to credit, by the way, a great article in The Observer about you saved me a lot of research uh, where I picked some of these things up. Mm-hmm. You cooked uh, at a place called Cezanne in San Francisco, right? Yeah. Talk about fine dining. Tell us about that. So um, while I was in Montana, I was kind of, I was, I was pretty much ready to leave. And I had an opportunity to go work an event with the crew from Meadowood, which is um, a three Michelin star restaurant in St. Helena. Um, so I went and worked that event and I was, you know, holy cow, this is this is what I should be getting into. You know, screw coming back and opening another restaurant. I want to learn more and I want to learn from these guys. So um, I landed at Qua before Cezanne doing a stage, which is basically an unpaid internship. So I did a stage at Qua for about two months. Um, working unpaid in San Francisco, which got my foot in the door, as well as a connection into Cezanne, which at the time had two Michelin stars. And shortly after I joined, they were awarded their third Michelin star, which if you're not familiar with Michelin stars, I mean, is the largest accolade that you could receive in the world of restaurants. There's four restaurants on the West Coast with three Michelin stars um, and just a handful in the United States, um, including the French Laundry, um, per se, um, Meadowood, Bennu, I'm probably missing a couple, but that was, that was huge. It was great to, to learn at that restaurant and then also learn what I didn't want to do. Um, I spent a huge part of my life chasing, um, Michelin stars and, and that lifestyle and that level of cooking. And I'm glad that I got to the very top because I, I kind of realized that it wasn't for me. How so? Those restaurants are just very, very cutthroat. And I've kind of built my career on following what would make me happiest. Mm. I was happy to be working in one of the best restaurants in the world. But at the end of the day, I, I wasn't happy. Yes, we'd receive accolades and flawless dinner service was, you know, the most accomplishing feeling that I possibly have ever felt. Um, because it was so hard and so difficult. But I mean, if you're on the verge of tears almost every day, then then how happy can you really be even after all those accolades? Yeah, and there's also, there's nothing that I resent more than, you know, than paying $1,000 uh, for two people to have yeah. dinner. And so there's that aspect of it too. Uh, you know, at that point, it's not about food anymore. Exactly. Um, you're never going to see a family of four in a three Michelin star restaurant um, enjoying a family meal. Um, and that's what made me fall in love with food. So I kind of had to take a step back and look at my roots. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I love fine dining. It's, it's comparable to the fashion industry, right? That's where, that's where everything starts. It's similar to high fashion. But it, you know, at some point, you're going to want to come home and wear sweatpants. We'll be right back. Learn olive oil sensory assessment in New York. The Olive Oil Sommelier Certification Program offers comprehensive instruction in olive oil sensory assessment and olive oil events throughout the year. Sign up at oliveoilschool.org. 
How did you uh, meet the people at Cobram Estate? So after Saison, I came home to open a res- another restaurant um, called Saddle Rock. I was approached by a group to open this place in Sacramento, and it was this kind of great homecoming after being gone for a while and being in San Francisco. And I was really um, excited to bring back a lot of knowledge that I gained and these restaurants in San Francisco. So during the opening conceptual stages of this restaurant, um, Cobram Estate reached out and said, hey, we're doing our very first harvest lunch in California. We've got these people coming, which were some heavy hitters um, in the food media world. And um, would you like to would you like to cook the lunch for us? Can we hire you? Um, I guess they had done some research and asked a few different chefs to submit a menu. They liked my menu, and um, I was like, hey, yeah, it'll be great. I'll go out and get some publicity for the restaurant and probably some free olive oil and cook in an olive grove. Should be a great day. Did this lunch, hit it out of the park, had an amazing time, and started talking with some folks from Colburn. Um, they were real keen to continue working together. We weren't really sure in which way. It's not like Cobram State had this opening for Chef at Large and put it up on LinkedIn or something like that. It's it's just kind of grew organically. So I continued to do some, some freelance work for Cobram on the side while I was opening this restaurant. We went and did fancy food show in San Francisco together. I developed some recipe content for the website, all the while falling more in love with olive oil and tasting these awesome fresh oils. And one thing kind of led to another after an event, you know, kicking back some beers and hanging out and saying, wouldn't it be so cool if, you know, we could... And when I say kicking back some beers, we, we had been doing that for, for a few hours. So you can imagine where we were at and just going off, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? And wouldn't it be cool if we could do that? And, you know, you could travel around and cook and both harvest, market the oil and build content. And kind of got to a point where I just said, well, well, can I? Can I do that? In the background at that time, things weren't going so great with the restaurant opening. Um, I won't get into that too much, but they were kind of changing directions and I wasn't getting these warm and fuzzy feelings anymore. And there wasn't too much going on in Sacramento at the time. So I was just kind of stuck opening this restaurant that I was slowly realizing I didn't want to open anymore. So I left that job and the same day I came down to Woodland and signed papers with Cobram. About a week later, two weeks later, I was getting shipped off to Australia to kind of familiarize myself with the Aussie culture. And then um, I was out there cooking for harvest. Wow. And so now you're in the thick of it with olive oil and you're surrounded by people who are talking about olive oil 24-7. And, you know, you're a chef who's who's been around. And is it interesting to you to look back now at, at your perception of olive oil in France and you know, the various places that you've been and, and compare that with your your understanding of the of the ingredient now. It's opened up a whole new world for me. Um, it's It's been amazing. I really thought just starting with Cobram, honestly, years ago, that um, it was just another ingredient. Um, but now it's become the, the star of the show in all my cooking. Hmm. Um, I'm just enamored with with olive oil and its history and its culture and culinary uses have just um, it's made my cooking so much better. We could say that using great olive oil obviously makes my food taste a lot better. And it's been it's been interesting to kind of look back and and think about how 
olive oil has kind of progressed in the industry and we still have so much work to do in the restaurant industry and especially in the u.s and so much education to do still it's mm. it's um we uncover so much more every day and the layers and layers just keep unfolding and unfolding and i realize how much we still have to learn and how we're still pioneers in this industry you, you don't really get a sense of until until you're really in the thick of it um, you don't think of something so ancient as olive oil still being so undiscovered. You know, you feel like the only pioneers in any kind of industry could be tech or something like that. But there's still so much to learn. So I'm just so excited to um, really plant my roots here and um, help educate people and just continue cooking with these awesome, awesome oils. Yeah, you were there at the week-long olive oil sommelier certification course in California a few weeks ago among an incredibly diverse group of people from all over who took the time out of their busy lives to deepen your understanding of olive oil. What do you think about the way olive oil has this way of bringing such interesting people together? And, and you could say that again, interesting people. Um, at that course, there was such a um, such an awesome variety of people. I mean, we had... Uh, importers and producers and journalists, chefs, I mean, um, people from all around the world. Um, so to kind of have this this panel of all these great minds in the, in the industry all in one spot really put things into perspective for me and, and got me even more excited about being in this industry. Um, it's not just something I'm, I'm, I'm doing with food anymore. It's, it's, all about olive oil now. Um, and you, sometimes you don't realize how exciting it is until you meet other people that share the same excitement. Um, mm. So you kind of like, isn't this so cool kind of moments with these people? Yeah, one of my favorite parts of the course is the open forum where we, you know, over lunch we, we share ideas and we just brainstorm in different directions on whatever comes to mind. In fact, here's a clip of that. Those uh, five days or six days, um, I learned to appreciate the characteristics of the mild and delicate and really see, I mean, be able to taste the fruitness, the olive green in those too, as, as much as they exist in the robust uh, olive oils. So that was like a big shift in my mind. It seems high to a lot of people in the U.S. because they still think of olive oil as a condiment, something that you put on top of something else, something that's the supporting cast. But if we could start to change the view of olive oil is it's the star of the show. Uh, and the, the number of olive oils we tasted here in uh, just four days, five days, is enormous. And it's really amazing to see lots of oil oils, olive oils. And it might take you some time to recover from that. Um, there are two things, though, which I'm looking at. Uh, one is the development of a, a fused type of a Korean food to olive oil. The other side is, of course, bringing the uh, European diet directly into a Korean market. How do you market the oleocanthal and the health and wellness um, so you can tie it into a higher cost category of olive oil? And in the U.S., we don't have that level of, of appreciation. You know, if you would try to market like me an artisan type of product versus the large company, can we quantify quality? I know it seems like uh, I'm an engineer, so maybe I like to quantify everything. You know, I think let be people market that the olive oil is healthy. Then everyone sell olive oil. We don't benefit. But can we quantify to differentiate? 
for the circle of friends, and they're very diverse, they're already saying, wow, this is different. I need to pay attention more. I'm looking at oils differently. And um, I think it could work. In terms of marketing, I mean, we can always show good examples like of and the benefits of olive oil and extra virgin olive oil. And a lot of times, most of you probably have seen documentaries. There is a Greek island, Ikaria, uh, that the longevity of the people that they live there and their, and their diet is based on extra virgin o olive oil far bypasses any other place in the in the world it's like yeah i mean the average age there is like 95 and i mean you see everybody's going 9500 years old and that itself it's if that doesn't give value to extra virgin i don't know what else could possibly do yeah same that was that was awesome to hear everybody's story and it's like after that open forum it's like holy shit everybody here is really cool very interesting and and um doing some really great stuff I mean, on top of everything I got out of the course, which was so much, um, at the end of the day, it's also it was also a great networking opportunity. I've got friends in the industry all over the world now, um, and I mean that happened within one week. I mean that's the, those are connections that take you know sometimes a career to develop. So what's next? What are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? What's what are you looking forward to now with Cobram Estate? Well, after harvest, I generally lick my wounds for about a week and then kind of pick up where I left off. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening um, with what, what I'll be doing with Cobram. Um, we literally wrapped up harvest, and within that day, I got my first email um, talking about 2018 harvest in Australia. So on the back burner, we're gearing up for 2018 harvest. And then here, we're just building our infrastructure. Um, what I'm most excited about right now is is the garden that I'm putting into place. I'll be building a sensory garden coming out of this olive oil sommelier certification course. Um, I'm, I'm really keen on, on educating people and getting people as excited as I am. So having the sensory garden will be able to, and when I say garden, it's, it's on premises at Cobram where we process, where we have a lot, our lab and everything. Um, we'll be able to go through and taste these fresh oils basically coming off the separator and then also go through this garden where I'll be growing things to use in the kitchen, but also things to just go up and smell. I mean, to to kind of internalize what an artichoke smells like, to know what a... The elusive green almond. Yeah, I'll be growing some, some almonds. I was lucky enough to, to grow up in an almond growing region, so I knew exactly what a green almond smelled like. No, But nobody else does, so to be able to offer something where we can kind of go through and, and internalize these these smells and, and kind of just hone the senses and then then people will be able to enjoy olive oil that much more and to be able to discuss it and say, yeah, I do get some some tomato leaf on this and, and some herbaceous notes um, and I know what that smells like because I just rubbed my hand on the tomato bush and picked some herbs uh, from the garden. It's fantastic. Um, so we've got the the garden going and just building a ton of a ton of content and is is my main goal right now so we'll be blasting out a ton of um, recipe content showcasing the culinary applications and and even pairings um, with this awesome product and i i tell people you're not going to have one wine in your house right you're not just going to have some buttery chardonnay sitting in the fridge um, you're going to want a variety of wines for different occasions and different 
dishes that you're eating. Um, it's the same with olive oil. There's, there's so many different applications for so many different oils in a wide range. So um, showcasing that to the world is my next big goal, getting other chefs on board, other producers to collaborate with us. And when I say producers, I mean farmers, cheesemakers, people that also make great product. Um, and just kind of building that culture in California, that community and that culture. And, and you know, in Greece and Italy and Spain, there's, there's such a rich olive oil culture. And what's so exciting about being here in California is um, we can help build that culture. We can be a part of it. We can, we can set the, the, the tone for the next generation that will be enjoying this product, that will be learning more about it than we ever knew, that will be reaping the health benefits for a longer life than we'll be able to live. So to, to kind of set the tone for this olive oil culture in California is, is my next main goal. That's fantastic. And that's a great goal to have. And we appreciate the work that you're doing and wish you continued success. Chef Kevin O'Connor is the chef at large for Cobram Estate. Thank you for joining us today, Kevin. Having me, Curtis. On Olive Oil is produced in New York by Olive Oil Times, the world's leading olive oil publication. To listen to past episodes, visit onoliveoil.com.